0: Jesus serves as, as mediator, as one who enables us to partake of the glory of God. Um, and I, I think that's a crucial element for us to understand. One of the great gifts of the gospel is not just that he removes the enmity of God, not just that he removes the curse of God, but also what he actually puts in place, namely our ability to experience the glory of God, that he, he brings divine light
1: Does Doctrine Really Matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, Executive Editor of Credo Magazine and Associate Professor of Christian Theology at Midwestern Seminary.
2: Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. One of my favorite letters in the New Testament is the letter of 1 John. Well, John has written one of my favorite Gospels out of all the Gospels, the Gospel of John, but I often turn to his very first letter again and again to understand Not just who Jesus is, but specifically, what does it mean to be a Christian? What is it like to, what should it look like, that is, to live the Christian life? And where is our hope grounded? And where is our hope taking us to? I can't help but think of First John 3, a passage that I recently uh, had the joy of preaching on, where John makes a statement that I think we as Christians sometimes overlook. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And then John says, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. You know, this these verses have been uh, just at the the front of my mind for so long, because not only does John say we have a hope that awaits us uh, in which we will be conformed into the image of God, but he even says something so bold, we will see him as he is. And if you know anything about the Old Testament, you may be wondering, John, how in the world is that even possible? Well, older theologians used to have a phrase that they used to describe what John is speaking of, the beatific vision. Unfortunately, this concept has fallen out of use in many ways. You will rarely hear it used in many evangelical churches, for example. But perhaps you noticed, even in the passage I just read, that for John, this isn't just something that one day will happen. But John even thinks that this great hope should galvanize our holiness in the present, even be a reason for why we seek after that purification that he speaks of. Well, once your eyes are open to the beatific vision, you may notice that this doctrine and this hope actually comes up everywhere in the New Testament in ways that maybe you didn't see before. Who can forget Jesus's famous words when he says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Well, what is this beatific vision all about? How do we define it? And why is it actually not a tertiary doctrine, but quite essential to not just understanding who God is, but our hope in this God and what eschatology should look like, and in the meantime, what, how we should understand life here on earth. I have asked Michael Allen to come on the Credo podcast to answer some of these difficult questions. He is uh, the author of many many books, but I have to mention one of his recent books called "Grounded in Heaven: Recentering Christian Hope and Life on God." This book is published with Erdman's Publishing, but he's also written um, a chapter in the New Views book with Zonervan on Heaven itself. I can't fail to mention that Mike Allen is a systematic theologian, and so we are especially happy to have him on the Credo podcast. He's professor of systematic theology and dean at the Orlando campus at RTS. He also has a wide range of interest. Uh, many of you have read some of his books in theology, but perhaps you've also read some of his books in church history. Mike, thank you so much for joining me on the Credo Podcast.
0: It's great to be with you today, Matthew. Thanks for having me in the conversation.
2: You know, one of the th- the things that might strike some of our listeners, especially if this whole subject is new to them, they may be asking themselves, well, if this doctrine is so important, why, why haven't I heard about it? Uh, that, that That sometimes is a question I get. And it does raise some uh, difficult uh, issues, maybe even some puzzling circumstances in the last century, I I think we could say, when we look back over our own theological environment and start to wonder where in the world did this doctrine of the beatific vision go? Why did it disappear? Now, you've been studying this for some time, and uh, you actually make a fascinating point when you say well and, and, I, and I think if I'm correct me if I'm wrong, but I think for you, Mike some of this even comes out of your own experience as a reformed theologian. You make the point that in the rise and and maybe some of the energy and interest in the neo Calvinists of the past and uh, the neo Calvinist movement, if we can call it that today. There's been a, a, a bit of a criticism, I think we could say, and maybe we might even put it stronger than that, a bit of a criticism, sometimes even a mocking of this idea or notion of heaven itself, as if that's something old-fashioned and uh, something that uh, really the Bible isn't too concerned about. The Bible is perhaps more concerned about, about a new heavens and earth. And uh, in the meantime, cultivating uh, the earth in in ways that are, you know, true to our, our different vocations. But you actually push back against uh, going too far in that direction. Why is that the case?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, as somebody who has really benefited from and lived within circles shaped by the, the neo-Calvinist thought and movement, Influenced, of course, by folks like Kuiper and Herman Bovink, my personal favorite. Um, I, I nonetheless can assess that, well, that's a movement that has so insistently and widely tried to be theocentric, um, to always ask the question of how the supremacy and sovereignty of God, the lordship of Christ, relates to every sphere. And perhaps Bovink, more than anyone else, somebody who models that across the board, uh, and yet, for some understandable reasons, I think, when we read a, a great text like his four-volume Reform Dogmatics, we see he goes curiously quiet about the beatific vision when he gets around to his eschatological discussion in volume four. Mm. And not surprisingly, more recent figures who are far less uh, encyclopedic and attuned than Bavink was they will go further. They won't simply be silent. They will even chide and, and mock some of uh, these classic Christian convictions about our heavenly hope, uh, about the, the blessed vision of God, uh, about the importance of that kind of, of spiritual aspiration and desire we have. And I I want to name those as, at at one level, very understandable because neo-Calvinism in the last century or more has so often been responding to uh, the dangers of certain versions of dispensationalist theology. um, Versions where there very much is a sense that this world is somehow lesser and is going to burn, and our hopes are meant to be placed in some sort of of higher realm. Now, there's a whole lot of ways in which neo-Calvinist critiques can, like any critique— uh, sort of go caricature style and make dispensationalists sound worse and, and zanier than they are, and that's not helpful. But there is a rightful worry about this idea that you know our our true hope is somehow a merely ethereal hope. Um, and, and there is a rightful concern that we catch the biblical teaching on kingdom, on resurrection, on embodiment, on sociality, on the new heavens and the new earth. And, and that's a good response by Neo-Calvinists. On the other hand, there's just always the danger of overreacting, of responding so much to one perceived danger uh, that one fails to confess all that the Bible says and perhaps that one fails to catch what the Bible actually emphasizes. And uh, I think here, we have to be honest, even someone as brilliant and generally as theocentric as Bavink, here's a moment where that polemical concern leads him awry. And uh, I think we could say on his own principles, uh, he should have and could have been more consistent. And in his wake, a lot of others, uh, figures like Tom Wright, N.T. Wright, or Richard Middleton, a whole host of of scholars influenced by and in that tradition, they have had a a much more antagonistic kind of posture with regard to the the centrality of a a heavenly hope and a beatific vision.
2: Mm. Now, maybe listeners are picking up on this, but you are already starting to take us into territories like eschatology, right? Because as soon as we push back against, um, you know, some of those movements, inevitably we have to start asking ourselves, well, uh, what does the end look like and what awaits us uh, in life after death? I think, you know, one of the phrases that you uh, use at different points, uh, perhaps when we're talking about maybe the the worst version of what you just talked about, so um, is, is the phrase escape eschatological naturalism uh, in which God becomes whether intentionally or not, maybe accidentally, but God becomes more instrumental uh, to, to another end uh, whatever that end may be, perhaps a type, uh, maybe even a good motive like you know the renewal of the earth, but none, nonetheless instrumental rather than the end itself in which communion with God is, is the telos of our existence. So take take a minute mike and 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 talk to us about the danger of of this maybe the most extreme version and eschatological naturalism and that type of outlook yeah. and and why that is so actually contrary to the way that that we should be thinking about the end the end times as yeah. we call them
0: that's a great question, so when i Speak of eschatological naturalism. First of all, I've coined a term to describe a tendency. This is, as far as I know, not something anyone is a self-proclaimed card-carrying eschatological naturalist. (laughs) Um, I'm also describing something that is very specific: naturalism with regard to eschatology, not naturalism writ large. So. The folks I'm describing are oftentimes people who might be known as Augustinian or Reformed, or they might self-identify as Calvinist, perhaps, or neo-Calvinist. They believe in divine sovereignty and grace and God's providence and these wonderful ideas. God moves history along, and God graciously ushers in good and wonderful things through Christ and by the Spirit. But but I'm identifying this tendency— when they get to depicting the end state, the way in which our hope is described, where they either go silent regarding the presence of God, or they actually speak negatively about it, in place of that, they emphasize all sorts of other goods. Um, And the goods can vary, as you mentioned. It could be bodily health in the resurrected body. It could be psychological well-being, the cleansing of the conscience. It could be restored relationships and reconciliation with fellow humans. It could be world peace. Uh, It could be ecological balance, where uh, finally the kind of tumult we experience uh, with regard to our natural environment is no longer a threat and danger. Um, Any of these and other things uh, can be the, the focal point, you might say, but the, the underlying issue is that the centrality of God to our hope is, is really lost. And, and a way of putting it, perhaps, would be to say they're taking certain goods, but they're failing to miss the glorious because of their fixation on the good. And, and perhaps that's a way of thinking in biblical terms, that the Bible describes God's desire to glorify us and to help us share in his glory— and glory is more than just goodness. Um, glory is is a higher or highest good, we could say. And um, we don't want to be Manahean dualists, the kind of people who think the created world uh, or some spiritual force is opposed to God and is just intrinsically evil. Uh, we don't want to be Gnostics who think the material world is evil. Um, But even as we as as Christians rightly say the world is good, our bodies are good, uh, relationships are good, psychological well-being ought to be good, Um, those goods are not the ultimate glory, and we need to be able to distinguish priority. And that becomes crucial precisely because what you hope in shapes how you live, and Again and again, what we see is that the the great danger for Jews first and Christians now is this danger that we would hope in something lesser and we would find that we live an idolatrous life, um, that we, we really live in a way that expresses love and devotion, not necessarily to bad things, but to mere goods as opposed to the ultimate glory of God. Mm. And that would be a tragedy, I think.
2: Yeah. When we talk about the ultimate glory of God or the goodness of God, uh, certainly we experience in all kinds of ways the the effects right the the many good effects um, both with the people and the world around us uh, but as you've mentioned, um, these aren't the the ultimate uh, glory and good that we 're after, uh, though they are designed to to point us uh, in that direction. Um, the psalms speak of this in so many ways right the heavens declare the glory of god now that being said um maybe some are wondering well what is that end or well, what, what does that look like and and maybe that word look is actually quite appropriate after all because in the great tradition uh this was spoken of in terms of a of a vision a vision of god or a beatific vision of God, as it is sometimes called. Now, I I want to get there in a second, but maybe we should back up for a minute. And especially for those who who might be suspicious and think, "Oh, is this uh, is this Roman Catholic? Uh, is this uh, something that we're just imposing?" Um, maybe others are wondering, you know, is this something that we're we're just imposing on the biblical text? Um, in your experience, Mike. How has your understanding of the beatific vision actually just sprouted very naturally from from the scriptures themselves?
0: Yeah, well, for me, you know, I've grown up and I live and serve in a Presbyterian and Reformed context, and one of the key rhythms of that kind of piety is that there are certain spiritual practices or means of grace that we highly emphasize, and we're not unique in these, but, but two that are really central are first the, the reading and the praying of the Psalms, and so one of the most central rhythms of my life for decades now is praying through the Psalter, day by day, month by month, so that I'm going through it every month and absorbing the kinds of hopes and desires, the kinds of longings and laments that David offers there um, really illustrates a couple things. One, as you mentioned, the Psalms range over this, that, and the other. I mean, David is an individual, and he's also a king, and so he speaks in a way that we can personally identify with, that any given human would have certain struggles at different times and yearnings. He also speaks in a public capacity and a representative role as a a unique leader. And we can appreciate that too. And so it's not shocking. He asks for everything from food to protection from the elements to protection from military threats, to political success, to uh, the forgiving of sin to the removing of of god 's curse, all sorts of realities that he asks for, but the second thing that stands out to me through years of of reading and praying the psalms is he again and again, while he can name all of that, he says one thing I ask, one thing I ask that that I would be with you, that I would dwell in the house of the Lord um you know David can bring that up, for instance in Psalm 27. And, you know, as I'm reading or praying through the Psalter, I think, brother, you're, you're 27 Psalms in, you've asked all sorts of things. What are you saying? <laughs> One thing I ask, right? Are you kidding yourself? Um, he, of course, isn't saying that's the only request. It's a statement of ultimacy and priority. Mm-hmm. And in all sorts of ways uh, throughout the Psalter, while his request and concern are as global as can be, and that's a model for us, he also models a prioritization, and I find that personally to be a, a very obvious prompt that I need to increasingly ask God to mold my desires and yearnings and prayers and hopes in that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, a second, just very basic rhythm from my own tradition, and many would in, in their own church settings have similar experience, is that the practice of Sabbath keeping very much Reflects this idea that all days are good, life is a good, breath is a good, work is a good, family and marriage, all of these things are goods as we we are given them by God. Um, we are to enjoy them. We're to thankfully uh, live in and lean into them. Uh, and yet, there is a a great good that we're to devote a day set apart. Uh, as a, a remembrance of that which we look forward to, a rest that is super abundant, you might say. And I, I just find that Sabbath-keeping practice uh, gestures ahead to some greater hope. Uh, and so in just very basic rhythms, whether it's tending to the Psalter or it's keeping Sabbath it seems to me that this idea that that we're made for this deeper, fuller communion with God that doesn't challenge or denigrate, doesn't dismiss uh, our earthly concerns, but it does relativize and and sort of order them. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've found that doctrines like the beatific help give theological structure to that, but I found that really just the basic elements of, of praying the Lord's prayer and listening to the Sermon on the Mount and trying to identify with the prayers of the Psalter and trying to, to keep Sabbath and to practice fasting, those things really speak to this higher hope that is so central first to the way of Israel and now to the church of Jesus Christ.
2: Mm. You know, I, Mike, those, those words from David— in Psalm 27, uh, I too keep coming back to those words, uh, both for me personally, I resonate so much with what you just said, how the Psalms become uh, really a rhythm of of life and, and praying through them. That's something that I've uh, maybe enjoyed most of all is uh, just with my own family, working through the Psalms, uh, which is something that is uh, just so basic, but also so profound. Um, even with little ones, but that psalm in particular psalm twenty seven when David says one thing I've asked of the Lord that I will seek after, and then he says, "I will dwell in the house of the Lord that that I would dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, but then he says to gaze, to gaze yeah. upon the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple uh the, you're right, you're exactly right, I mean David does ask many things, but this seems to be the ultimate thing that he is after if if only I can spend my days gazing at god's beauty th- that is where i want to be that is where my purpose is found now I, I suppose you know some some may be thinking okay well how in the world can david say that when uh we learn back in deuteronomy that god has no form and then if we skip ahead to the new testament doesn't doesn't paul say that this is the the invisible God who dwells in unapproachable light. So how is it that—let me throw that question at you, Mike. What, how do we answer that? Because certainly that's a biblical instinct to want to respect that creator-creature distinction— is David off base, or or is there a way, maybe even a trinitarian way or a Christological way, that uh, this beatific vision isn't just a vain hope, but it it's real and it's possible, and it it actually uh, will be a reality?
0: Yeah, let me let me maybe start at a generic level, and then we can press into what really is a I think a productive question to wrestle with, even if we can't necessarily find uh, an answer that's completely determined and clear. Um, so the, the generic point would be to say maybe, okay, so why do we call this the beatific or the happy, the blessed vision? What's up, what's up with fixing on that sense as opposed to hearing or whatever. And I think it's crucial to say, not only does the Bible use the language of sight, um, uh, but it uses other language as well. Um, the idea of hearing God and so forth sight is is fixed on here because face-to-face intimacy is this closest personal intimacy Um, i am hearing you now from afar i am not seeing you face to face and so uh there is a a greater uh, personal communion when you and i are together in a given space and we're not merely interacting over a distance through simply oral communication and and the emphasis on vision then is meant to show that this is the the the, the heightened it's the greatest human uh, intake of God's presence that is possible. that's that's plainly why this is accented. It's meant to speak of our fullest possible experience. And while there are many happy sights, I love to see the coastline, the the beauty of of a beach. Mm. you know you love to see <laughs> a sunset. I, I love to see when my children are happy and joyful and obedient, right? Um, or the occasional day when the Orlando Magic win a basketball game. <laughs> but this is the happiest. This is the happy sight. It's the one that trumps all others precisely because you take in more of God than any uh, anything else. Um, so how is that possible? That's a fabulous – and it's a question where – it's really interesting because the Bible seems to say things on the one hand that make God visually available, and on the other hand seems to warn about or describe reasons why God wouldn't be visually available. And if it was just one or the other, it would be a little more straightforward, but the Bible actually is communicating in both registers. So, for instance, just, you know, think back to Exodus um, Moses is atop the mountain. God's giving him the Ten Commandments. The people get impatient. Uh, They decide that they ought to fashion this golden calf and employ it in worship. God is angered. He's going to wipe them out and move on with Moses. Moses asks God, remember your promise and your name on them. Don't wipe them out. God relents. Moses presses on don't abandon them either. Remember that your name's on them. Don't send us out, but that you go with us. God says, yes, I'll, I'll go with you. At this point, Moses kind of realizes I'm two for two with my prayer request. So I gotta, <laughs> You know, let's let it ride again, as it were.
2: Why not? And he says,
0: Show me your glory. Right. Why not? I'm on a roll. <laughs> and uh, at this point, God says, look, uh, you know, you can't see my glory. And this isn't the first time we see this in Exodus 19, when they first got to the mountain. Um, Moses says, all right, y'all, let's go up the mountain and be with the Lord. And the people say to him, we can't go up the mountain and see God, or we will die for our sin. Mm. And then in that great moment of congregational response to a, a leader or a pastor, they say, you go up. <laughs> They're comfortable with them going up and potentially dying. Um, and uh, they're willing to sacrifice Moses there. Mm -hmm. Um, So he goes up, and uh, what we observe is that God says, Moses, you can't see my glory, um, but if you stand around the edge of the rock, I will pass by, and God literally, to be as blunt as possible, says, you can see my rear end. You can't see the glory of my face. You can see my rear end. Um, Now, of course, God doesn't have a posterior any more than God has a nose. Mm. So this isn't specifying body parts (laughs) that are or aren't appropriate. It's meant to convey uh, a different notion of availability. And what's fascinating is Moses goes up and he's around the edge of the rock, and we're told that the Lord passes by, and there's pyrotechnics, and it's, it's rather remarkable in an environmental manner, as Exodus 34 describes it. But when the lord passes by it's described not in visual form but in auditory form the lord proclaims his name the lord the lord a god merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and so forth and and what we see there is god is making himself present in a way that plainly isn't the highest possible presence there was something moses was told he couldn't have but it's also more than simply god having talked to him the day before, Mm -hmm. and it's using the the sensory language here to convey what can and what can't be accessed. And we're going to see throughout the Old Testament that that kind of back and forth gets used to speak of how we can enjoy the presence of God, but there there are both moral and metaphysical limits to what we can take in. And it's in that kind of context that eventually we come to the transfiguration of Jesus— And Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Hmm. John 1 has told us that, you know, no one had ever seen God, but the Son exegeted or interpreted the Father to us. The Son is the presence of God to us. Paul, in his writing to the Corinthians, will say that the glory of God is revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. And we see that most fully in that transfiguration account and it's it's fascinating that there, one of the remarkable realities that's new is that Peter's a good Jewish boy. I mean, he sees Jesus transfigured, illumined, exactly whatever that means visually. It's, it's rather hard to get your mind around because none of the rest of us have seen this yet. But it's clearly overwhelming because of the light, as opposed to the darkness, which is a staggering claim. And Moses and Elijah are there representing the law and the prophets, and Peter says, not can I make tents so we can hang longer, but can I make tabernacles Mm. so that this doesn't kill me? And it's crucial to catch. He uses that language for tabernacle to wall off the glory of God so that it doesn't overwhelm you. And it's, it's fascinating, of course, while he's proposing that, suddenly God starts talking from heaven on high. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. The disciples hit the dirt. They're terrified. Surely they think they're about to die. And Jesus comes. And what's fascinating is how he moves the sensory experience even a step further. And he touches Peter. Mm. And the way it's described, surely he touches either the small of his back or his shoulder as he's there, chest on the ground. And And Jesus tells him and the other two, rise and have no fear, which is a staggering statement because in the presence of God, like any king, you hit the dirt, you don't stand. And in the presence of the glory of God, which needs to be tabernacled off, you ought to have fear. That's appropriate as a sinner. But Jesus is saying, no, now you can stand and no, now you need not fear. And when we're told they do so, the one last line is, all they saw was Jesus. And it seems to convey that somehow now this mystery of the Old Testament, that we would have a longing and a yearning to experience God to the full, see him, to take him in, and that we would have been incapable, not just because we're creatures, but because we're sinners, that this is now going to be brokered or mediated by Jesus of Nazareth, that the incarnate Son of God is going to allow us to really take in and be with God in a way that involves us standing up, not cowering down and involves us having no fear. And, uh, you, you let off our talk by turning to first John three. I mean, it's crucial right along with that. It talks about perfect love, casting out fear, that kind of servile slavish fear that would keep you distant from God. And, you know that's very much what's being conveyed in that transfiguration account. So Jesus serves as as mediator, as one who enables us to partake of the glory of God. Mm. Um, and I, I think that's a crucial element for us to understand. One of the great gifts of the gospel is not just that he removes the enmity of God, not just that he removes the curse of God, but also what he actually puts in place, namely our ability to experience the glory of God, that he He brings divine light. He brings divine glory and goodness so that we can partake and commune and so that we can see mm. that kind of deepest experience that's described.
2: It is a deep experience. And I suppose at this point, uh, you know, we could say, well, goodness, this this." vision um, this love that drives out fear as you phrased it, which i, I really like uh, how you've you've uh, framed this. well, is this only about Jesus um, uh, on the one hand as, as you just mentioned, uh, and you think of when Paul writes to the Corinthians, he actually picks up that whole story of Paul on the mountain coming down, his fe- face veiled, and then Paul makes this bold statement to say you. You have unveiled faces because uh, you have this knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So certainly Christ is, and and we could even talk about the incarnation and how uh, even a moment like like the transfiguration, how all of this is so central. We could even use a, maybe a word like Christological, so central to our understanding of the beatific vision. But Mike, I also know that uh, you don't stop there. Uh, You go further to say, well, if it is this Christological, um, I I love how that imagery where Jesus touches, you know, Peter's shoulder, um, it's so personal as well. At the same time, though, is there a a Trinitarian aspect that we don't want to leave out either that is not— you know, Christological or Trinitarian, but actually these two complement each other. How how does that work exactly?
0: Yeah, I think we need to be careful here, but I do think we need to proceed here. We need to, on the one hand, say that Jesus does come, uh, that he might show us the Father. John 1 tells us that, and of course, Jesus will even go on to say that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, Mm -hmm. and that that involves an element of trying visibility, therefore. Um, in a, you know, a like or analogous way, but not in the exactly same way. I think we could say by parallel that there's a, a visibility to the spirit as well in and through Jesus. Um, so I do think we want to say that we we do have an experience of the highest possible intimacy that is described via this language of sight and it's of the whole Godhead at the same time. And this is, more typical within the Reformed tradition, a number of figures expressing it in slightly different ways, uh, I think there's strong reason to maintain the idea that that vision is always brokered through or mediated by uh, Christ in some fashion. Other theologians would argue that there may come a time where in certain respects that's no longer quite the case uh, once we're in the new heavens and the new earth, but but I tend to think that that what the New Testament actually says is fully Trinitarian, but it's also always Christologically mediated Mm. and that both of those are significant and that that honors the fact that the triune God is not a, a unity of uh, just three generic characters who all happen to be divinely glorious, uh, but that there is, um, you know, a personal property with regard to the Son, uh, such that he is the one who proceeds from the Father and ultimately by God's kindness is actually sent on mission from the Father to be visible and to make the Godhead visible. And uh, I think to honor the Trinity is thus to honor and receive the, the Christological form in which it comes. Um, precisely what that experience uh, involves precisely how to make sense of that, um, the way in which we we all experience that simultaneously and forevermore in the new heavens and the new earth. Those are a whole host of questions where I I do think we reach the limits of what the Bible determines or uh, sort of gives us good grounds to to claim, but it does sort of invite us to this this greater hope, albeit perhaps an underdetermined one of exactly what its character is. And I personally find that remarkably exciting, the idea that, you know, we will have a an experience of God in Christ and of the whole triune Godhead and in through Christ that, that will somehow be more real and more satisfying and at the same time more... Um, Provoking a further desire mm. and of an ongoing yearning for more, which shall continue to be satisfied and yet back and forth, um, more so than anything I've ever experienced. Mm. And um, you know that's where we're reminded that the things of this earth they are they are small tastes, foretastes of of the more real. I think that's one of those notions C.S. Lewis is so profound in. Describing the way in which, you know, when you when you get to the heavenly homeland, um, you can talk about differences in even the grass, right? Yeah, uh, the way in which it's felt, it's more real, more substantial, um, and I I think that's counterintuitive for us. I think it's hard for us to imagine that something that we we have difficulty sketching out per se. Um, would actually be more realistic or more satisfying. But, you know, that's that's the way of God. And mm. that seems to me to be something that really beckons forth prayer and hope and uh, a willingness to sacrifice here in the meanwhile for the sake of that greater good.
2: Mike, you mentioned C.S. Lewis, and uh, I can't help but think of this quote that I know you're familiar with from mere Christianity. And I'm just going to read it for a second because it's so profound. It speaks to what you just said, but it also speaks to so much more when we start to think about, well, what, what does life look like now? Right? So he says this, Mm -hmm. he says, a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not as some modern people think a form of escapism or wishful thinking. But one of the things a Christian is meant to do, It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, uh, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, uh, the, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade. and all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. And then and then Lewis has this closing line. He says, It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven, and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you will get neither. What, what profound <laughs> words by, by C.S. Lewis— Mike, I just want to give you the opportunity here uh, to to comment on Lewis, but but even more so to, to maybe answer this question: if if we take Lewis seriously, if we actually are going to be heavenly minded, is it appropriate then? And in what sense should we use a word like ascetical as as a term that describes our way of life with God?
0: Yeah, that's a great question, and I. I do think that's one of the most moving passages in mere Christianity. Um, and really, as as Lewis is trying to describe it, just uh, an essential element of classical Christianity in all its varied forms. Um, but something that probably feels very foreign and perhaps uh, misanthropic to a lot of our contemporaries, like this is sort of something that would involve self-hatred or hatred of the world or of the body or something. Um, And uh, I I, I take it that Lewis there is really just calling us to heavenly mindedness. And he's doing it like the Apostle Paul in Colossians 3, who speaks of setting your mind on things on high. He's doing it like Jesus, who calls us to seek first the kingdom, to not be anxious about earthly cares. The flowers and the birds are cared for. How much more shall our Heavenly Father care for us? But seek first His kingdom and justice, and all else will be given to us. I think Lewis is thinking back to the psalmist, as we talked about before, who longs for nothing more than the very presence of God. Right. My my favorite line at the end of Psalm 16, verse 11 You know, in your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand or pleasures forevermore. Doesn't denigrate or dismiss earlier in that psalm that there are pleasant boundary lines that have been given to them. Doesn't dismiss resurrection hope, even in the verse just prior, but names the fact that the path of life is ultimately to the greatest and longest lasting joy in being intimate, proximate, as near as possible to the glory of God. Um, and so I, I do think this kind of heavenly mindedness is a common thread. And I think the flip side, we need to be candid. The flip side to that, if you won't be heavenly minded, don't be surprised if the best way to describe your way of life is idolatry. Mm. Um, it really is that stark a uh, call in the Bible. If we're not heavenly minded and fixed on that ultimate hope of life with God, it means we have an outsized aspiration for some lesser good. And, uh, you know, that's, that's a reminder. Lewis elsewhere will say something similarly in an essay, First and Second Things, uh, where he here says, if you aim at heaven, you'll get earth too. If you aim at earth, you'll get neither. There he says, if you aim at first things, you'll get second things too. If you aim at second things, you'll get neither. Mm-hmm. And that's a reminder that, you know, as Augustine puts it, we're, we're called to order our loves to love lesser goods. Yes. But to love them for the sake of the greater good Mm. and to treat God alone as the greater good. And I think that involves sacrifice and training and discipline and formation. And yes, that's why early Protestants like John Calvin would describe the Christian life fundamentally as summed up in the language of self-denial and, um, You know, that's not just something that monks or extreme Gnostic ascetics would say. That's been a a plumb line running through all of Nicene Christianity in its various forms, including Protestant and Reformed forms. And I think it's terribly important that we recover the significance of what we might call evangelical asceticism and uh, a distinctly Protestant approach to self-denial. There are wacky ways it can go. We can view it as somehow a path to earning our adoption or justifying our existence, and that would be to deny the the soul sufficiency of Christ, and it would be to forget that the motivation ultimately, in so many respects, for our self-denial is the fact that God has already given us Christ. So uh, we need to be aware of that. We need to be aware of sort of silly and uh, traditionally imposed legalisms. We need to have a, a scriptural asceticism, but we really are called to a host of things. We're called to give generously. We're called uh, to live within our means. We're called to uh, give time to the Lord. We're called to fast. We're, we're called to do so many things that involve um, controlling our urges sacrificing lesser goods for greater goods. We're not just called to turn away from evil. We're also called to give up lesser goods for the sake of the higher good. And I think we as a a Christian community would find that a lot of our witness is truly hindered to the extent that we don't own up to that. And I think that a lot of our evangelistic um, impact Will either be furthered or will be weakened by the way in which we're willing to really describe Christianity as a, a serious call to discipleship and something that is so terribly glorious that it is worth some significant sacrifice. We need to be able to call people to take up their cross, to follow Jesus, to know that, you know, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. And so we need to think through that in terms of our sexual lives, in terms of our material possessions, in terms of the way we use. So many of us have uh, so much time on our hands relative to other humans in other places or other centuries. Uh, so how do we use our calendar? Um, all those sorts of things. How do we not just avoid sin, but how do we express devotion ultimately to the greatest good, to God himself. And it seems to me that 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 really does involve us being intentional about heavenly mindedness first and about ascetical discipline second.
2: We've been speaking with Michael Allen. He's professor of systematic theology and academic dean at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando. Uh, I I, I just want to leave... Uh, this conversation and, and encourage our our listeners. If you have not read uh, one of Michael Allen's books, uh, you are so missing out. Uh, can I just encourage you to pick up his his short book, "Grounded in Heaven: Recentering Christian Hope and Life on God." Uh, perhaps read uh, his recent chapter uh, in the Views the Zondervan Views book on on heaven itself, uh, or you may want to uh, pick up. Uh, two of his most recent books, uh, books of essays actually, uh, Fear of the Lord and the Knowledge of God. Uh, Mike has just a profound gift for uh, not just reflecting on God, but as you just heard, reflecting on how God then affects uh, how we think of our own Christian life. The beatific vision may be foreign and strange to many Christians today, but I hope you know, leaving this conversation, that it is actually essential Uh, quite foundational, not just to our understanding of God, but all the goodness and graciousness and all the riches that God has in store for us in Christ Jesus. Mike, thank you so much for joining us on the Credo Podcast.
0: Thanks. It's been my pleasure, Matthew.
1: Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.